Well, it's a frosty Sunday morning here in London, but by heavens, it was a hot day across Russia yesterday. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So hello, it's the morning of Sunday, the 24th of January, and this is the perhaps inevitable response to yesterday's day of protest across Russia. It's not particularly considered, it's not particularly curated, so my apologies if it stumbles sometimes. But nonetheless, I felt it was important to give some kind of first response. So, in summary, we have seen, well, we still don't know the numbers, tens of thousands, but I would assume overall definitely more than 100,000 Russians coming out on the streets, despite the obvious promises, threats of the state Despite the fact that it's midwinter, I mean, people protesting in minus 50 degrees in some cases, for heaven's sake. And also despite the fact that it was clear that the, the state was going to get rough. And of course, despite the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. All the same, people came out. And they came out in, what, almost 120 different cities and towns? Just simply if we look at the arrests, the most recent figures that I've got from OVD Info, an invaluable NGO... 3,296 arrests across the day, which again tells you something about the scale of the protests, given that we know that only a small minority were actually detained. And perhaps most intriguing of all, initial suggestions that perhaps over 40% of everyone who turned up at the protests, for them it was a first time at a rally. This is not just simply bringing out the old hardcore or anything like that. This is something that is spreading. And that's why I think it's worth dwelling on it for a little moment. First key point to make, obviously, this must be considered a success for Team Navalny. Now, this was not in any case going to be a make or break type of event. Or rather, actually, it could have been a break event. If it had been an absolute flop, then really it would have been a blow that it would have been difficult for them to recover from. But as it was, definitely not. With just one week's notice, in all those conditions that I mentioned, they managed to bring out you know, pretty massive protests. And again, although this is by no means a, a knockout blow against the state, we shouldn't start moving quickly into the usual sort of hyperbole that suggests it's the beginning of the end for Putinism or whatever. I mean, it may be. It could well be that when the history books are written, this is where they'll notice this inflection point. But... We only know that in hindsight. But nonetheless, I think it does say something that they managed to bring together this coalition of people who exactly were aware that the state was likely to crack down. And many of whom were there not because it was a case of supporting Navalny, but so much as because they felt that what had happened to Navalny was completely out of order, or more generally, Navalny becomes that one piece of grit in the oyster around which the pearl can cohere. In a spur-of-the-moment tweet, I talk about the coalition of the fed-up. And in many ways, that's exactly what we're talking about. 
that people have all kinds of reasons to be unhappy or uncomfortable with the way things are and the way things are going. And in a way, this just simply becomes that catalyst, that, I hesitate to say excuse, because that implies something almost duplicitous, but rather this becomes the cause around which all these different protests can cohere. And that's really important. So, you know, this is something significant. What else will we have to see? Well, look, the question is, where do they go from here? And I'll talk about that in a moment. I wouldn't, again, one keeps falling back on the same old cliches, everything to play for and such like, but it's true. And in particular, what, what was quite interesting is that with Navalny now behind bars in Matroska Tishina prison, and quite frankly, unlikely to come out anytime soon, it means that the focus then becomes much more on a separate generation, a separate layer of people. First and foremost, Yulia Navalnaya, his wife, with all kinds of suggestions that she might, just like Svetlana Tikhanovskaya in Belarus, that she may be able to step into her husband's shoes as some kind of leader or indeed figurehead of, of the movement. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, she herself certainly asserts that she has no such ambitions and so forth, but again, that's politics for you. We'll wait and see. Then there's the whole other generation of, if I use generation, it's not necessarily in age terms, but seniority terms, shall I say, within the movement, of people who, again, the focus will be much more on, on these people. Uh, the, the head of Team Navalny's investigation section, Maria Pievchik, the spokesperson, Kira Yamish, um, Lyubov Sobol, who we saw being arrested, and perhaps most importantly, ironically enough, not the people we've heard of, and I'll come back to this later, the regional organisers. That's going to be absolutely crucial, making sure this is not just simply a single Team Navalny headquarters in Moscow, but actually a nationwide movement. So, again, not an out-and-out an -out victory, but nonetheless a really strong start for Team Navalny. Well, what about the state? Well, the Kremlin responded by doing its usual thing. We will, and rightly so, focus on the brutality of the tactics and certainly the activities of individual police officers. Again, I'll come back to that in a moment. But perhaps a slightly heretical thought is, actually, this was by no means as brutal a takedown as it could have been. We've seen worse. I mean, when was it? It was in, I think it was the 2017 Moscow protest. There was one particular day when clearly the National Guard had been let off the leash and deprived of fresh meat for a day or two. And you know, the results were really very, very ugly. So likewise, they could have been a lot more vicious. We must remember that the authorities do have a lot more bloodstained cards in their hand, but they didn't. They were trying to go for enough repression that they hope it will have some kind of warning off effect for future times without so much that it really made this a war in the streets. And at the same time, they amped up the propaganda. And in this respect, I mean, they really have gone further than ever before, directly suggesting that the US embassy was somehow involved in organizing the protests, very much pushing up this notion of Navalny as an American agent We've seen, in essence, all of this before, but certainly in terms of the, the tone and tenor of Pierre Bicanal and the other particular propaganda channels on Russian television, 
this definitely looked like a, a, a step up. And also, I mean, even just looking at the Russian press, of course, there's a whole spectrum when we come to the print media. But in, if one looks at Rasitskaya Gazeta, the usually rather stolid government newspaper, there was such a, an array of particularly unpleasant propaganda about it. I mean, there was, for example, the um, Ombudswoman for Children, Kuznetsova, very much sort of saying, oh, isn't this terrible how we have these protesters using children as human shields while they attack the police and so forth. Really over-the-top claims coming really fast. And that's quite striking because it becomes very difficult to know how to escalate from that point. But nonetheless, they decided to, as it were, go moderate on the violence, not in any way that that's justifying the violence that there was, and going extreme on the, on the propaganda. Which means that what are they trying to do? They're trying to delegitimize the protests by saying, look, this is actually about foreign subversion rather than domestic political issues. And Navalny himself is not someone you should be protesting for because he's a, a criminal and, again, a foreign agent. But above all, what they're trying to do is wait out the protests. Again, this is the, the classic Kremlin tactic. Enough violence to be monetary. But largely, you just simply rely on the fact that it's hard to maintain the momentum week after week to be able to get people out on the streets. And once it starts to trickle down, once the numbers begin to become a little bit less impressive, that's maybe the point where you can start thinking about going in harder. On a micro scale, this is precisely what they did in Khabarovsk with the Furgal protests. Sat it out until they were small enough to be able to really be given a good kicking and dealt with through the usual instruments of the National Guard. So, in a way, that's what the, the state is doing, in part because it doesn't really have that many strategic options, and in part because, in the past, this has worked. Key thing to stress, though, is absolutely this is just the beginning of a process. First of all, Navalny is not getting out of prison. And if anyone felt that these protests were somehow going to make the state do so, well, they need to be disabused of that. If anything, the protests ironically, perversely, tragically make it less likely that he's getting out of prison. Because precisely, this is a state that never wants to look weak. This is a state that feels that if it starts to give in to protests, then who knows what else will happen next. So, yeah, he's, he's going to be behind bars. The only question is, is how long? As I said in a previous podcast, I mean, I think we're definitely going to be seeing him behind bars until after the state Duma elections in September. There are some who are suggesting that it's going to be years. We'll have to wait and see. Second thing, as I said, Team Navalny must know how to build on this. How to reach out, for example, to those first-time protesters and ensure that they become regular members of the movement. To use this as an opportunity to both build an organisation, which they have been doing, but they need to do it at a much more extensive stage, especially outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. But also recognition. This is a great opportunity to get the word out. Smart voting, this notion of tactically voting against whoever is best placed to displace the United Russia candidate, that must be part of the national conversation for Navalny to really be able to feel that he's made a success. If that is, then in some ways it doesn't matter so much what the status of Team Navalny is and whether half of them are in prison or whatever. If people are already thinking and talking about smart voting, 
about the notion that maybe, just maybe, the coming Duma elections are not going to be a waste of time. Well, then, that is actually a real and concrete victory. So they have to build on that. They also have to reach out to the systemic opposition, so-called. In other words, the fake political parties, particularly the communists and the other left-leaning ones, and essentially try and make this an existential moment for them. Are you more systemic or more opposition? Make your choices. Now, again, on a national level, these parties are not going to flip. There's no question of that. The issue is more about can you use this to build alliances on an individual or an organisational level in the regions, in the cities, and with a younger up-and-coming generation. There's already been some hints of that, particularly with the Communist Party, something I've, I've covered again in the past. The question is whether this can be used to go further. To almost name and shame people into deciding where their allegiances are. The whole point is they have to keep up the momentum. Now, you cannot, except in extreme cases, and obviously one, one can look to the phenomenal things that have been done in Belarus, but we have to realise that's, frankly, an outlier. Unless you're in an extreme case, you are unlikely to be able to keep the same momentum of protests indefinitely. So, by all means, they ought to be looking about how they can, for the moment, repeat yesterday's success. But they also need to be thinking about how can they redefine momentum so that it doesn't just simply mean that each week they can bring at least as many people out on the streets. Because there will come a point when those numbers quite possibly will begin to dip. And they can't allow that to be framed as failure, as a defeat. So instead what they need to do, as I said, is to reframe momentum. Maybe it's going to be about just simply ensuring that every Saturday or whatever there are one-person pickets or other kind of symbolic gestures. Maybe it's musing more about smart things like flash mobs to, on, on an unpredictable level, keep the Team Navalny message in the public consciousness and above all doing it again outside of the obvious main cities. But one way or the other, they have to be thinking now about how they can be imaginative about the notion of momentum in the future. That's going to be quite a difficult challenge, but nonetheless, it is going to be a crucial one. Thirdly, what about the state? Well, in a way, the state really just has to hang on. I mean, that, that's its, at the moment, tactic. You know, it's going to hope to outlast the, the momentum, again, if I go back to that, of, of the protests, and slowly grind it down with a mix of repression and propaganda. Slowly try to give the notion that these people, they are, I don't know, counterproductive in some way or the other. It could be that they're going to push the notion that these are COVID super spreader events. Though on the whole, it is worth stressing, the protesters seemed very, very disciplined in terms of wearing masks. And I suppose it also, in an age of facial recognition, had a sort of subsidiary virtue. But nonetheless, you know, whether it's that, whether it's again, as I said, going back to this whole propaganda line, one way or the other, the state wants to slowly delegitimize the protests and also to simply make them less appealing. And by last, outlasting, also make it look increasingly pointless. Again, we've got to realize, and it's a point that I've hammered home over and over again, so my apologies for boring you with this, but this is not just simply a bloody-handed tyranny, even though it is a tyranny in many ways and it is bloody-handed often. 
This is much more of a modern, even postmodern authoritarianism. And it depends much, much less on fear and much, much more on apathy. If people think there is absolutely no point in voting against United Russia, in protesting, in just generally sticking your head over the parapet and expressing any kind of complaints, well, if people think that is pointless and potentially risky, they won't bother doing it. The reason why Navalny is dangerous is because he challenges that apathy. Well, the state wants to grind it down, and part of that is going to be exactly by enduring, by not giving in, and by making it look as if it doesn't matter how many times you come out onto the streets. It doesn't matter whether or not you've been arrested. Frankly, you're not going to get anywhere. Then after a certain point, most people are likely to peel away. So that's essentially going to be its strategy. It obviously could move to something rather more, um, again, bloody-handed, but that's much more risky. And in the second part of this impromptu podcast, I'm going to move to precisely the, the risks and also the international dimension. Back in a moment. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, what is the rest of the world to do? Well, I mean, obviously we have had the, the necessary and ine- inevitable expressions of concern, grave concern even, and the need to stand by the heroic activists and so forth. Well, that's fine, but that's also to an element pro forma. It is enough to provide more grist for the Russian propaganda mill, not enough to actually make any of a difference. So we have to move beyond that. The first and obvious tool that people reach for is sanctions. And we have already out this list of eight names that Alexei Navalny identified as the top names he would like to see sanctioned, a mix of people who are directly involved in his case, such as Minister Murashko, the health minister who was involved in the cover-up of his poisoning, or the head of the Federal Penitentiary Service, Kalashnikov, perhaps an appropriate name, especially for a career political police officer, who obviously is behind his current arrest. And also, beyond that, names of people who are kind of facilitating sanctions busting or who are acting as the, the wallets of rich, powerful people. And, of course, a couple of oligarchs whom he feels benefits from their relationship with the Kremlin. And that's really important, not least because sanctions, sanctions may sometimes have an effect, but even when they don't have the direct effect of changing policy in and of itself, they are powerful statements of national policy, and in this case, of national revulsion. However, we need to be going beyond that. First of all, even if we're thinking about sanctions, I actually think there is a particular value in sanctioning people at the middle level of the system. People who are actively involved in giving orders, or in otherwise giving aid and comfort to oppression. I mean, again, take that that case of Kuznetsova, who is, as near as I can tell, and I could be wrong, but as near as I can tell, flat out lying about what she saw in terms of the use of children as human shields. 
people should not be allowed to get away with that without it being noted and not just simply tut-tutted. But you know, people like that ought to have sanctions slapped on them so that when, God willing, this whole coronavirus thing abates and people are once again thinking about foreign travel and so forth, they should realise they are not going to be getting visas to any Western countries. We should be looking beyond that then. So people who actually are willing to lie in order to traduce the protesters as violent thugs, cowards, foreign agents or whatever, they should realise there are going to be consequences. We can look also at the people who actually give the orders to the security apparatus. Who is, for example, in charge of the particular units of the National Guard that maybe behaved so specially badly in different places? Now again, on one level, I can feel sorry for them. They're within a chain of command. They know that they have to do what their bosses are telling them. But the point is, they chose to be in those positions, they choose to remain in those positions. There has to be some kind of sense of culpability. We can't just simply wait until the regime changes and then say, ah, but there'll be lustration and so forth. In other words, you know, a kind of a settling of scores and a purging of the unclean. We actually need to be saying now, this is something at pretty low cost the West can be doing. I mean, let's be honest, there is no real cost to us if a bunch of thugs, liars and propagandists no longer can come and spend their money in our shops and stay on our beaches and such like. Now, of course, the Kremlin may well respond, and I'll come back to that, but that shouldn't stop us. So, as I said, we can, we can look at the big picture. We should look at the big picture sanctions, absolutely. But why not also then start making people realise, making people who just simply are following orders, that time-honoured phrase, realise that there are consequences for doing that. Moving beyond that, we can actually think about, dare I say it, measures beyond sanctions. And this is the trouble. We, we, Western countries have become so used to thinking that somehow sanctions is not just the magic tool, it is the only tool, and it's not. How else can we act on whatever a small scale to demonstrate that the international community does have the backs of Team Navalny and of Russians who want to use what is, after all, even within Russia, their legal and constitutional right to protest. Well, I said at the time, and I know this is a little bit controversial, but on the, on the day of the protest, I would like to have seen Western diplomats out there on the streets, not joining the protests, but accompanying them, observing them directly, and making a point that that is exactly what they are doing. Of course, this provides more propaganda. But the fact is that the toxic propagandist of the state make up whatever they want to say anyway. It doesn't really matter if you give them something real to spin or they invent something to spin. So we might as well do something real. It could perhaps, especially if it had been known in advance, have actually toned down some of the, the violence we saw. And given that actually we may in future protests see more violence, perhaps that's still something worth thinking about. So, you know, actually a, a willingness to put people out on the streets as direct observers. I mean, of course, there were going to be people from the embassies who were observing. But the point is, you make a thing of it. Give them, give them nice, I don't know, day-glow pink vests saying diplomat or something. Anything to make them visible. Moving beyond that, what can we do to, to basically support victims? And when I say victims, you know, I don't mean Navalny or his wife, or his most high-profile uh, team members, though 
the latter are worth considering. But you know, other other Russians again. Do we not want to put more of an effort into actually ensuring that ordinary Russians feel the outside world has got their back, that will highlight their cases, perhaps, that will visit them, maybe, or or whatever? I mean, obviously, and in the most extreme cases, maybe even offer them asylum. Again, you know, we're talking about a handful of people, who, a handful of people who are willing to stand up against a regime that's already tried to kill Navalny, after all, and now has stuck him in prison. So we should be thinking about how we can do that. Now, I don't have an answer. I don't have a blueprint. This is my 10-point plan for how the West can reshape Russia. Firstly, because it is not the jobs of the West to reshape Russia. It is Russian's job to reshape Russia. We really should stress that pretty much every single time we talk about this. But nonetheless, what we need to do is show that we have their backs. It really is as simple as that. Simple to say, of course, not simple to do. I do appreciate that. But I'd like to see much more conversation about this, much more signs of political effort, rather than simply writing yet another diplomatic protest or press statement. But of course, there are risks, and that's where I, I want to end. I've inverted Pandora's box, and we had a bit of hope at the beginning, and I'm going to end, end with, with risks and woes. And there are risks for everyone concerned. For the international community, as it's clear, the danger is that, first of all, that they actually contribute to the state's efforts to tarnish this movement as being somehow a sort of foreign coloured revolution, attack on Russia, and therefore it becomes patriotic to resist it. That's perfectly true, but it seems to be that that's how they're pushing it anyway. So in a way, we, we, we might as well lean into that. Second risk for the outside world is that the more that in fact the the Kremlin feels it has to play this nationalist card, the more it has to get very extreme in its denunciation of foreign interference, well, the risk is that will indeed bleed into other aspects of policy. It's very hard to keep totally detached, to basically be able to amicably negotiate while at the same time denounce as the, the very sort of demon's henchman. Now, the Russians have been in the past quite good at compartmentalising. And for example, I don't think this will affect the current discussions about nuclear arms control, because that's in everyone's interests. But nonetheless, there is a problem at the extent to which, in a way, the Kremlin begins to limit its options precisely because of its propaganda. We'll just have to wait and see. Secondly, the risk is, of course, of the unexpected and the unpredictable, the bloody Sunday moment, if you go back to the 1905 massacre that sort of triggered the 1905 revolution. I mean, we have seen, for example, some really quite horrific instances of police and, above all, National Guard brutality. There was the 10-year-old the boy that a police a senior officer was basically dragging away. There's the 50-year-old woman who is still in hospital after being given a sort of flying kick by a riot policeman in passing, essentially, while she was asking why they were dragging someone away. And then, you know, most I mean, heroic and, and uplifting. I mean, there was a case of this, this obviously terrified old lady whom a riot cop wanted to drag away. And, you know, a young man basically said, look, <laughs> what, if you're just thinking about your quotas, your arrest quotas, then take me instead. And indeed, he was duly led away to an Avtozak, to, to a police wagon. Now, all of these demonstrate that in the modern panopticon society, 
when you know everyone's smartphone is a camera and a transmitter and basically a TV station in one, well, obviously the state uses the Panopticon Society to its own advantage, but it cuts both ways, especially with a very online and quite savvy nation. And therefore, these these things will will spread. And of course, you know, we we never know. I mean, I I always mistrust that notion of the one crucial image that somehow changes everything. But nonetheless, it is clear that they absolutely set the tone. And who knows when something will be shown which actually might trigger violence from the streets, which in turn will trigger violence from the defenders of the state. So it's this kind of escalation that's very, very hard to predict once we get into it. But of course, again, that also goes both ways. I mean, there is a risk here for the state in that the security forces, who up to now have basically done their job, but are not necessarily all of them, you know, robotic minions of Kremlin violence, they may themselves begin to, to actually demonstrate agency of their own. I mean, we have seen cases already of police officers speaking out, criticising, and indeed being sacked for doing so publicly, criticising what's going on. The question is whether this begins to become a thing. That is, after all, one of the crucial um, lines of the the invisible political battle currently taking place in Belarus, in which officers from the security forces who are opposed to Lukashenko's regime, many of whom have now left the country and are now in exile, are trying to encourage their compatriots, shall we say, still in uniform, to think twice about what they're doing. We'll have to wait and see what happens, but there is an interesting scope for... On the one hand, radicalisation of the security forces. If they feel embattled, if they feel that basically people are are out to get them, they might well respond by radicalising themselves and becoming more violent and more oppressive. But conversely, they might well find themselves facing a a series of choices. And again, this is actually one in which society is going to be important. And are they going to start to be ostracised? Are people going to start saying... We saw what you were doing out there on the square on Saturday and we don't like you. We're not going to, I don't know, give you the usual courtesies to your neighbour. We're not going to be comfortable with our daughter going out with your son or whatever. So we'll just have to wait and see. I mentioned Belarus. And look, this is by no means a Belarus situation. But nonetheless, one of the risks is also that if this continues to be a thing in Russia it might well influence Moscow's policy towards Belarus. At the moment, I mean, it clearly is unwilling to see Lukashenko toppled by people power, but nonetheless, it does look as if it's trying to move towards a situation in which it can induce Lukashenko to step down and be replaced by a rather less toxic figure. Well, it might be that it decides that in fact, and obviously this is something that Lukashenko will clearly, in his own wily way, be promoting, that in fact, Anything, any change might embolden protests at home. And therefore, it actually has to not just support Lukashenko, but actually throw its own weight behind Lukashenko to ensure that his own campaign to suppress his domestic opposition triumphs. Not just succeeds, but triumphs to demonstrate that, in fact, if you try and take on a state such as this, you will lose and you will lose badly. So in this respect, Belarus could, could become, in some ways, a battlefield for Russian politics. And that's not good for Russia and certainly not good for Belarus. 
So those are just some of the various risks. We're going to have to wait and see. I don't want to make this sound too apocalyptic. I'm just laying out some of the possibilities. What I suspect is that certainly for the moment, the Kremlin is, is settling down really for a siege rather than a pitched battle. And what this means is, yeah, so Team Navalny definitely won this one. There is no question. But this is just the start. This is just the start of a campaign, not a one-off battle. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.